All right. Do you want to just preach spontaneously, bro? Like, I don't know. You can. Um, okay. <laughs> well, we're going to dive right in today to Matthew. Uh, if you're new to Hiawatha, welcome. We are in a greater series in the book of Matthew, the New Testament book of Matthew. It's one of the four gospel accounts of the New Testament, the first four books of the New Testament. And Matthew, one of Jesus' disciples, gives a bit of a unique spin in some ways. The gospels share a lot of material. In some ways, they're unique as well, which is really cool that they do that. It's, it's uh, intentional that God uh, wrote his word for us that way so that we would have a, a good plethora of teachings from Christ and, and other things as well that just tell us about what his mission was, why he's here at all, why he came into the world, and just what sin is, what, who we are in Christ and our need for him and all kinds of things. So the Gospels tell the theological history of his birth, his ministry, his death and resurrection, and in some cases his ascension in the very beginning of the church. And Matthew is the longest of the Gospels. It's going to cover a whole slew of things right from his birth all the way to Christ's post-resurrection appearances and right before his ascension to heaven and the giving of the Holy Spirit. And actually, we get a commission of the church as well, which not all the gospel accounts get, which will be in a year and a half from now, or whenever it's going to be. It's a long book. We'll be prodding along here in about a year, or maybe about a year from now we'll be starting to wrap up. But uh, right now we're in Matthew 8, and we're beginning a new mini-series within this greater series, which we're calling Demonstrations and Declarations of the Gospel of the Kingdom. So remember in context, in chapters 5 to 7, Jesus has just finished teaching quite a bit about the nature of salvation and the seriousness of sin, his mission. And then he came down from the mountain and he healed a bunch of people, three of whom are recorded, or three of which are recorded in some detail for us to read about. So a leper and someone who was paralyzed and another individual with a fever. And it just talks about how he healed them and how he talked to them too about faith. And how we talked about last week too how the goal of all of those is really the cross because he doesn't just heal people. He talks about, in many cases, and these were a couple examples last week, about our, our inner sickness being sin and how we have a greater need for that type of redemption, that type of cleansing, which is eternal and which is just a bigger deal. We all have that greater need. So these were demonstrations last week of all of us and, and Jesus, how Jesus rewards faith as well. These were all individuals last week who came to Christ empty-handed. They had nothing. It was, it was crystal clear last week, and Jesus will do this many times before Matthew is over, that it was not they themselves that healed themselves, that they didn't do it. Jesus did. They didn't have anything within them. No doctor, no other God under the sun could heal, only Christ. And, and so that's the same way for us. When we come to Christ, only his grace, his provision for us on the cross heals. Not anything inside us or outside of us, only Jesus. And so that's what was demonstrated last week. Today is going to continue to interact with people, but in a different way, a manner that pertains to what it costs to follow him. So last week, a lot of healing. This week, some challenges for a couple of his disciples that talked to him. So he's just come down from the mountain, and he's going to cross a lake here, across the Sea of Galilee, uh, to do some things we'll talk about next week, actually. But before he gets on the boat, a couple of disciples, one's a scribe, another's just a, a nameless disciple, come up to him and and talked to him about some things, and he responds quite simply, just in a verse. So only have five verses today. We learn a lot about Jesus, though, and the nature of salvation here, like we do every week, and uh, some other really cool things as well, too. So um, let me just read it in full. To begin, Matthew 8, 18 to 22, uh, says this. Now when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to go over to the other side. And a scribe came up and said to him, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes, and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Another disciple said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, Follow me, and leave the dead 
to bury their own dead. All right, so uh, some really great stuff here. Uh, some teaching, I think, that really confronts us, right? A lot of commentators in this, not just this section in Matthew 8, but in this greater section here of what Jesus is doing with his healings and especially what he teaches with things like this. These are things that really confront us. And I think in a big picture sense, talk about the cost of discipleship. And we'll use that word a lot today and into this series. Discipleship means essentially following Christ and being associated very closely with him. So Jesus had 12 disciples that he called to himself, 12 men that he especially poured into and commissioned for ministry that became the 12 apostles, the sent ones, really the beginning, the first Christians in a lot of, sense, a lot of ways. But he also had a lot of people that were just following him, that are called like these two guys, the scribe, other disciple. These weren't of the 12. These are followers, people that are interested in Christ, that want to hear from him, that, are, that respect him to a degree, that consider him a teacher, who maybe has seen some of his healings, believe he's a prophet at the very least, and they just want to learn more and see what's going to happen to this guy. And these are two, these are two of these in, individuals. But these types of teachings really, really confront. So, and also remember in context, a lot of the first century Jews here had a lot of expectations about the Messiah, the anointed one, the Christ. He's here, but in as much as they read their Old Testament scriptures and, and understood the prophets, they had expectations surrounding him that were in many cases misguided and therefore unmet. On a macro level, they expected a king who would eradicate Roman rule from the land. That's what they expected. No one, zero people expected that Jesus, the Messiah, the king, had to suffer on a cross to fulfill all of the prophecies. No one expected it. Zero people. And that's actually very significant for some things we'll understand later about the plan of God and how people are hardened and why Christ spoke in parables, all kinds of things. We'll get to that a little bit later in Matthew. But tons of misguided expectations. They were thinking about physical demonstrations or physical fulfillments of the prophecies that he would eradicate Roman rule, but Jesus really came to eradicate sin from human hearts. On a macro level, that was the case. On a micro level, he just teaches things like this. Very difficult things to hear, right? I'm homeless. Jesus, I want to follow you. Don't you know that I'm the son of God and I have nowhere to lay my head? Or another case, I want to, I want to bury my father. Can I just do that quick before I follow you? No, you can't. Let the dead bury their own dead. You come follow me. So these really strike at the heart of what it means to be a follower of Christ, right? And they're very, I mean, a lot of ways, I think, some people have like a list of things I just wish Jesus never said. <laughs> you know, it might be like up there, top three or something. Uh, but this is maybe one of those, right? And I love that it's juxtaposed so closely to things we read last week. Tons of grace, tons of teachings back in the Sermon on the Mount about the necessity of being poor in spirit. In other words, being spiritually bankrupt, bringing nothing spiritually to the table. That's how you partially get into the kingdom of God. If you bring anything to the table spiritually, you're kept out, Jesus says. So in context of all of that freeing type of, and challenging also, types of teaching, he says stuff like this to disciples that, from all we can tell, had a really good heart about them. They really did want to follow. The scribe says, teacher, which is a huge, which is an endearing term of respect. And the scribe was a teacher. So to say, teacher, uh, was a big deal. So from all we can tell, you know, men who have, at least partially good intentions here, he responds with uh, the, these types of things. So, all right, so in a nutshell, the problem with the two disciples here is the first is too quick and promising. The first guy, the scribe, is too quick and promising, and the latter, the other disciple, is too slow and performing. So we'll talk about those two things today. Too quick and promising, being a bit too much about the self, and vowing and promising and oathing before God, taking oaths. The second is too slow in performing and delaying. So there's danger in both. Danger in the I, speaking too much about the self before Jesus, 
also danger in just sheer delay. So we learn a lot about Christ. We understand actually all the important pieces to what the gospel is, what Christianity is all about, but then delaying and saying, I'm going to do this. I just got to get this thing done, or I'll really follow Christ when fill in the blank. That gets done. So we'll talk about that here a little bit later. But really what I want to do is just go through uh, verse by verse here, actually two sections. We'll look at the scribe first and then the, the other disciple. So, so first the scribe, uh, verses 19 and 20 again say, And a scribe came up to him, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere uh, to lay his head. Uh, so just to be clear, I may have mentioned this, a scribe was someone very proficient in the Old Testament in the first century. They were teachers and a spiritual leader of sorts. Uh, so there are other uh, camps of uh, different types of Jews, uh, leader, leader Jews, uh, Pharisees and Sadducees as well that are uh, used uh, interchangeably. These are different people that Jesus interacted with. In a lot of ways, uh, they were uh, the, uh, the antagonists. They were ones that bumped heads uh, with Christ a lot because they didn't view his coming as in the right way that, that they should have. And, but this scribe seems to have a lot of interest in Christ. They weren't all that way. So he just comes up to Jesus and says, Teacher, I'll follow you uh, wherever, wherever you go. So we're going to look first at verse 19 uh, with the scribe, what he says, and then we'll look at uh, Jesus' response. So the first thing to notice then is the scribe's confidence and his zeal, right? His confidence and his zeal. And to me, it sounded a lot like uh, Peter the Apostle. If you know a little bit about Peter, one of the twelve, that Jesus calls to himself. A lot of times in the scriptures, he has a lot of zeal, but a lot of times his zeal leads to misunderstanding or it's accompanied by a lot of misunderstanding. It's just, it's just too brash. In John 13, one of my favorite places this comes up, uh, when Jesus is washing the disciples' feet before he dies on the cross at the Last Supper, in verses 8 to 10, it says, Peter said to Jesus, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and feet, everything. And Jesus said to him, the one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. So I love this because he gets it wrong twice. You know, it's like, I got the right answer. You're not supposed to wash me. I'm the one that's supposed to wash you. Of course, it's misguided. Then he responds by saying, well, then wash all of me. But Jesus says, actually, that's too far. The other way, here's the right thing. And pretty humbling, right? If you're Peter and got the other 12 around you saying, kind of bumping shoulders, I told you. But um, I always love that. But anyway, the, the point here is sometimes biblically, as it's associated here with Peter and in Matthew 8's case, the scribe, sometimes our zeal is just too quick. And it leads to lots of biblical misunderstanding about the Christ, why he came. And so a lot of times it's the context for Jesus' teachings. He'll respond to foolish talk. He'll respond to misunderstandings that look like zeal, maybe look pretty spiritual actually, but have a lot of misunderstanding associated with it. So going back to Matthew 8, I think it's similar. I mean, look at Jesus' response. He's not terribly impressed with the scribe's zeal here, right? I will follow you wherever you go, Jesus. His response is not awesome and move on. Let's cross the lake. His response is something about homelessness, right? In John 2, it says that Jesus did not entrust himself to men, for he knew what was in a man. And I think that's what's going on here. He's not entrusting himself to this profession of obedience and discipleship. Because he knew that inside a man was wickedness and corruption and tons and tons and tons of rebellion against him and just sin. So it's almost like he's saying here with his response, no, you won't. He won't follow me wherever I go. At least based on your own strength, that will not be the case. I know what's in you and you will not follow me. 
And so he responds this way to help expose that, I think, in, in the scribe's heart. So, so note the I, going back to uh, the top there, verse 19, he says, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And there's danger in that. At the core of a statement like that, on the one hand, you know, going back to what I said before, there's probably some positive spin on this. He's actually, he wants, he respects Christ and believes in him to a degree and wants to follow. But on the other hand, it's very dangerous to speak so much in the I. Teacher, Jesus, I will do this for you. I vow to follow you wherever you go. And so part of Jesus' spin on this is to talk about his homelessness. Even foxes and birds have a place to lay their head, but not the Son of God. Do you know why I'm here? But in a bigger picture sense, it's to expose the danger here in speaking so much about the self and not about the Christ. Because biblically, the danger is that we center our spirituality about what we do for God rather than what the Son of God does for us. So the scribe then here is approaching Jesus. This is maybe the first thing, for all we know, the first thing he ever says to Christ is something about himself. He approaches Jesus based on his terms and says, I intend to follow you. I, not just follow, but wherever you go, whatever it brings, I will, I will be there. And that's the danger. And it comes out in a lot of things, a lot of different types of teaching and just in our own hearts. I think one place this comes out, and we talk about this quite a bit here at the church, uh, in our membership class and other places, uh, a lot of places it comes out is in, is in Christian music. And I personally, I know a lot of us here too, uh, we talk about this, but personally cringe when I hear songs that just promise too much from the heart. You know, Maybe they're not trying to be worship songs, uh, but they're just trying to be good music or something. But when a Christian song is just too much about me, too much about what we promise or vow to do for God in the future, and not as much about him. So single-handedly taking over the world for Jesus, and I promise God to never let you down, and I promise to follow you wherever, wherever you go. And, and I hear that stuff, and my immediate thought is, I can't sing that because I can't make that promise. I'm way too sinful to make that kind of promise in song or whatever uh, to, to God. And so I just, maybe that's just me, but I just can't listen to those songs, turn off the radio. Uh, but that's part of our worship philosophy here too at the church. So I think 90 plus percent, I'd say, Mike, I don't know if that's a good, hate to throw out numbers, but probably 90 plus percent of our songs, uh, worship songs here are intentionally, and all the great hymns do this anyway, intentionally focused on what Jesus does for us. Look at worship in the Bible. It's always response and thankfulness to the saving work of God. Always, 100% of the time. It's always God does something to save and the church says, praise God. Isn't he awesome? So good worship songs are all about that. But if you take out this side of things, if you take out all the, the good stuff about God and his saving work for us in Christ, then it's just a song about us and, and, and what we promise to do before God, and, but are, which are really empty. So and we have some songs that talk about the I. It's not so much talking about us and our response. It's actually a pretty, pretty great thing. That last song that we sang uh, before the sermon had tons of, work, tons of uh, Psalm 22 stuff about the greatness of God and the saving work for us in Christ and how he's faithful in dark times. But that last, that last verse was about us and our response. And that's really great. But where it gets dangerous is when, when songs or teachings are basically just promising and vowing and taking oaths to God that no sinful person uh, in their best days can keep. So I think then going back to this, one, one takeaway that's a bit contrary to what, how the scribe approaches Christ here is we can just and should Rest in the fact that God is the one who vows to save us. 
God's the one that takes an oath and promises and swears by his own name and resolves to bless us in Christ if we, if we trust in him, if we just receive. Hebrews 6 is great in this. Uh, Hebrews 6, 13 to 18. I'll actually just read uh, about four of these verses, but that's the greater section. Hebrews 6 says, another book in the New Testament, For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, he's the first Hebrew back in Genesis, God begins his rescue plan of the whole of creation, especially humans who are steeped in sin through him. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, that's us, the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath so that we might have encouragement to hold fast to the hope in Christ set before us. So here's the thing. Tying us into Matthew 8. This is the gospel right here. The gospel is that God has sworn by himself to save us. He says, if you trust in me, may I cease to be God if I don't follow through on this promise. God promising things in the Bible is a huge theme. It's supposed to be a super big encouragement for the church that God swears and he can never lie, right? Actually says that here in context. I didn't read that one verse, but it's impossible for him not to follow through on his word. He'd cease to be God. And so he's swearing on his own, nothing above him. I swear by myself. This is what the whole gospel is built around. God saying, it's the cross, but God saying, I swear the cross is enough. I promise, I take an oath by myself. The blood of Christ is sufficient to wipe all your sin away for eternity and nothing else is. But see, the gospel is, it's all on him. That's what this is all about. And so the response, going back to Matthew 8 then, the gospel is not that we have promised to follow him. This is not the gospel in Matthew 8. It's not there. Following Christ is a part of the ramifications or the, what we get to do when we, when we come to Christ. But the gospel explicitly is not that we promise to follow him. The gospel is he promises to save us. Isn't that great news? Yeah, it's freeing, right? The most freeing thing we'll ever hear in Christ is that right there. And actually in context, Hebrews 6 says, we have this as an anchor for the soul. So if you feel like your life's stormy, and it will be, probably is right now for almost all of us in the room in some fashion. Life's terrible in a lot of ways, right? But when it is, we have this as an anchor for the soul to hold us fast. God's the anchor, and what God does for us is the anchor. The anchor is not our promises, our fading, imperfect, unsure promises to follow him. It's that he has saved us from our inability to follow him well. Praise God. He does this. One of the things he died for is our false promises, you know, made to him that we, that we can't really follow through perfectly, perfectly on. So again, going back to Matthew 8, I think this is part of Christ's response here. He's just trying to make the scribe question his own ability to follow Jesus well, which sets him up perfectly then and us as readers to make it more about Jesus than, than ourselves. Then we'll follow Jesus with that mindset and trust that Jesus will save us from our sins and again, even our inability to follow him perfectly. Okay, that's the first thing then with the scribe's zeal in verse 19, that big thing to take away from that. The second thing though is, to kind of come full circle here with verse um, 20, I believe, is that right? Yeah, verse 20, with Jesus' response, is to acknowledge that 
Jesus still does talk about the cost of discipleship here. We can't go to the opposite extreme and say, well, then we should just never follow him in any way whatsoever. That's the equal and opposite extreme that's also, in, in, an equal, in an equal manner, very unbiblical. So we have to look at his response here. He is trying to teach about the cost and what it's just going to be like for someone to be very associated with Jesus Christ as a Christian, as a follower of, of Jesus. So his response here, again, is not just, great, let's go. His response is, great, but don't you know that I'm homeless, right? I've got nowhere to lay my head. I'm the Messiah. I'm the Son of God. The Son of Man, here he says, which is a messianic term from one of the prophets, Daniel chapter 7, one of the most uh, oft-quoted messianic prophecies in the New Testament. He says, I'm the Son of Man, but I have nowhere to lay my head. So, in other words, your following of me can't be based on comfort or what you think following me might mean, like just getting more status or something like that. Here's the key. Following me is about emptying yourself. I mean, if there's one thing that we learn about in terms of what happens to us when we're saved, even before the cross, how Jesus makes us understand how little it's about us. We've already talked about that here, right? How little it's about us, how much it's about Jesus. We also get that on the flip side, the the tail side, the other side of the cross, when we just live our lives that way humbly, not about us. And so Jesus is saying here, following me is about emptying yourself. It's about receiving everything from God, even the difficult. That's part of what it means to be a follower of Jesus, is receiving everything from God, even very difficult things, which are also uh, from him, the Bible teaches, for different reasons. So this doesn't mean to be a true follower of Christ, you've got to be homeless. Go sell all your stuff and live, live in a way that, I mean, literally, don't have anywhere to lay your head or something like that. That's taking this too literally. It's not what he's saying. It's meant to be read and understood against the backdrop of the scribe's overzealous statement. Are you prepared to suffer? Are you prepared to be uncomfortable? Am I more important than everything else in your life, he's saying? Even your home and what brings you comfort? Or even, am I more important than success? I think sometimes in the ministry world, I heard a guy say this once to a whole auditorium full of church planning types, guys that want to start churches, families that want to start churches, and pastors already in the ministry. He just said, and I love this, so appreciated this, because you just never hear this. I don't even know if I have this in mind or not, but this passage. But he said, God might be calling you to fail. He might want your church to fall flat on its face so that you might be an example of faithfulness in Christ. You might be an example of someone that says, Jesus is sufficient for me. I don't need to have a hugely successful church to get identity. Jesus is my identity. And that might be his mission for your life. It's probably not going to be the majority because God, of course, wills that his church grows as well and and spreads influence and saves more and all of that. But it could be that you will have nowhere to lay your head in that sense for all of you aspiring pastors. So there you go. Keep it up, but, you know, just keep that in mind. (laughs) Um, All right, so, but anyway, but Christians uh, find their home. True Christians that really understand the nature of the gospel find their home and their comfort in Jesus himself. The Bible says in Ephesians 1.11, He is our inheritance. Hugely deep, profound theological word there in both Testaments. Jesus is our land. He's our home. He's our security. He's our place of blessing. He's our protection. He's our provision. He's our happiness at the very highest level possible. So that we always see, no matter how great our homes are in this world, it's always less. So no matter how much that's shaken, our homes in this life, or comfort in this life, when all starts to fade, 
all starts to fade away, we still have the rock of Christ, the gospel of Jesus, the fact that God became a man to die in my place. We have, we have the home of that, the inheritance of that idea, that theology to stand on. It's sufficient for us. It's going to hurt, of course, to suffer in this life, but we have that rock to stand on. The one Jesus, and not just the man Christ, but what he did, the one who really became homeless for us on the cross, right? In his ministry, he had nowhere to lay his head, but it's really on the cross that he's homeless the most. That's where he's rejected by God the Father. That's where he has, he has no friends there. He's, he's outside the city gates. I mean, he, in every way possible, he has nowhere to lay his head when he's on the cross. That's what Jesus, he has so many things for us on the cross, but that's what the Son of God did for you and for me. He took it all upon himself. The wrath of God, the pain, the shame, the homelessness, the physical suffering, the spiritual suffering, the emotional suffering, he did it for us, and in that way, he died in our place. And this is how we're saved. It's incredible. This is what God is like. And he gives us a glimpse of it uh, right, right here. But, but it also means, in the meantime, between now and when Christ returns, we're going to feel the sting of being homeless, homesick, right? We're in Christ. He's our home now, but he's not here with us face to face yet. So we're going to be like an alien, like a stranger. We're going to feel that. We're going to be homesick. We're going to be looked upon as strange. We'll be rejected, all that stuff. And I'll come back to you a little bit more of that here after the next section. But let's keep reading. So that's the first guy, the scribe. The second guy is the disciple, or just the other nameless disciple. So verse 21. Another disciple said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. So, okay, uh, it's similar here, right? The point here is not saying you can't attend your parents' funerals when they die. In fact, in other places, he talks about the importance of caring specifically for your parents well. It's actually one of the Ten Commandments, honor your father and mother. So in both Testaments, we see the heart of God, that family, parenting, respect for parents, honor for parents, all that has a place in God's heart and a place in the expansion of God's kingdom for sure. Uh, but here he's saying still that, that I'm more important, right? It's actually, I was talking to Barrett this morning, it's pretty great that we're doing this on Father's Day, isn't it? I, just, I didn't think about this all week. Baron comes into my office and says, Happy Father, after I told him what I'm preaching on. It's a good Dad's Day sermon. Not really. Probably the only church in the planet that's preaching this on Father's Day. But uh, anyway, Happy Father's Day to you, all you dads. Anyway, but I think what Christ is saying here, he's intentionally saying something with bite to make a point, right? Let the spiritually dead bury their own physically dead, essentially is what he's saying. Let them be concerned more for that than me, than the kingdom of God. I want you, though, to drop everything and not delay, but to follow me, follow me right now. I think three things going on here. Go through these pretty quick. The first is just a simple statement of who and who or what's more important, right? Obviously, bearing our parents is super important. And for a first century Jew, it's important for us as well, no doubt. It was a more prolonged event, though, for a first century Jew. Actually, the guy is probably saying, not that my father's dead, but that he's dying. So he might die sometime in the next six months, but then for a Jew, it'd be like probably a year to not just bury and mourn, but to get things in order for his mom, for the wife, if she's still alive. That just took time in that culture, and so he's probably saying, I need a good year and a half or so uh, before I follow you. Is, is that okay? So, but it's obviously an important thing, but that's the point. That's why I love that this is the backdrop for what he's saying here, because it's incredibly important, right? But what's even more important? Jesus. And all that he's about. 
I mean, it's really a radical statement if you think about it. If Jesus is, for me, this is one of those places in the Bible, and there are many, where you can't just look at this and say, Jesus is just a good guy. He's just a teacher. He's just trying to tell us how to live our lives better. Because if he was, he'd say, yeah, go take care of your dad. Super important. It's in the law. It's in the Bible somewhere else. But for Jesus to say, I'm more important than that, is basically to say, I am God. I am more important than even that. See how he's calling people to himself? He's, he's, he's rallying people around him and ultimately what he's going to do for them on the cross. Not just saying, here's 10 steps for how to have your best life now. Here's 10 steps for how to live better. He's not saying any of that. Uh, he's saying, here I am. I am the most important thing in the universe. I am God himself in flesh. And I'm about to go to the cross here a couple years from now, and that will be the most important work out of anything I do in my ministry, anything I say in my ministry. I want you to follow me to that. I want you to follow me to Calvary. That's even more important than, than burying your father. This also reminded me of Mark 14, 7, which when Jesus says right before his death, you'll always have the poor, but you will not always have me. So more important than the church ministering to the poor is Jesus. I mean, just to, just to be clear on that, because there's a lot of people that either don't believe that or who would act as though it's not the case. It's super important for the church to care about the poor. What's more important? The gospel of Jesus Christ and proclaiming that. Just is. I mean, I think that's what's, that's what's at least in view here. Jesus is saying, in context, being anointed with expensive perfume on his feet, he's saying it's right that this is happening. Because I'm about to, I'm about to accomplish the most important thing that's ever happened in the universe. Even more important than caring for the poor. But the irony is, He's going to care for the poor on the cross, us, the spiritually poor, the disenfranchised in a spiritual, the one without home in a spiritual sense, the one without food in a spiritual sense, the malnourished in a spiritual sense. He's going to, do, he's going to fix that problem on the cross hours from then. So that's kind of the cool biblical theological irony there, which I love. But anyway, so that's going on too. So there are many important things in life, but we've got to separate the giver from the gift. Relationship there, of course, We've got to separate the giver from the gift, even with family. And since Christ is talking about family here a little bit, um, I think we should as well. Jesus needs to be visibly and tangibly more important to us than our marriages and our families and our kids. It just has to be the case. And for some of you, you've been rejected by your folks, or you will. You're brand new Christians, your folks won't approve. And what Jesus says to that is, the church is your new family. And that should be, following Jesus should take precedence over pleasing your family. Just should. Has to. Um, Aletha and I know someone who, the, the last thing that her dad said to her, basically on his deathbed, was, um, the biggest regret I have in life is that you became a Christian. It's the last thing, last thing she heard. And that's just, that stuff's going to happen. Uh, maybe not in the majority, but it's going to happen. So for a lot of you, that's the way this takes shape. But for a lot of us, we might have Christian parents, Christian families, it still has to be the case there that Jesus is somehow in the day-to-day, visibly, tangibly, our following of him, our association with him, more, more important. So this doesn't mean that we're just going to make a rote statement of value all the time, you know, like to our kids, as, you know, get Jane in the shoulders and say, I love Jesus so much more than you, you know, or something. Like, we're not going to, shouldn't necessarily be that. Although that has come up, I guess, uh, sometimes. I don't know how that came up. Our kids are, it's good, I guess. That's really healthy, of course, but there's ways to, Whatever. Let you do with that what you will. But, um, you know, have a great day at school as the bus doors are closing. I love Jesus way more than you as well, by the way. But see you later. But, but rather, I think this will show itself in how we give time to Jesus individually and how we bring him into our relationships with family members. So 
you know, as fathers, just to speak to fathers for a second too, since it's Father's Day. You know, for a father, this will shape the way that he leads his family and, and he'll want to resemble Christ and the love of Christ to his wife and if they have kids to their kids. And, and it will be very important for him to do that. But if they ever compete, then what we need to do is, at that time, make visible, tangible hierarchy there and say that Christ is, and this is the way it's going to take shape, Christ is more important here. And, and that's actually, for those of you who are married as well or engaged or want to be married someday, that is the most important thing you can do in your marriage is just value Jesus above everything. And even just somehow say that, you know, even, even to, to your wife, your husband, just to say, I love you and I adore you more than anything in the world, you know, except for Christ and, and what he means to me. And this is why, this is what marriage means and how it relate, relates to this. But just to demonstrate to your, your wife, your husband, how much Christ means to you. I mean, it's the most important thing in marriage by far uh, to, uh, to have as that corner piece. But, all right, but anyway, but I think that's what that means is bringing Christ into our relationships and bringing it into the family and making him the center of all of our conversations and activities and meals and you know, walks to the bus stop and everything, just making him a part of all of that, it will demonstrate to our kids and our spouses how central he is and how much more important he is than everything in, in our lives. Okay, that's the first thing. Second thing is, uh, what's going on here is this, is this question of delay. This question of delay. And, and I think to pull from, again, it's not a literal one-to-one here with the barrel of parents or the barrel of father, but it's just this idea. If anything in our heart, any part of our heart says, I'll really believe in Jesus and engage with the church, his body on earth, after this busy time of life, or after college, or after I can sleep more with my girlfriend, or after this job, this busy time of my job, or just this job itself, which is a temp job, kind of gets over. Any part of our heart goes there. Uh, what we're doing is basically committing idolatry and doing the same thing that the other disciple here is, is rebuked for. We're putting something ahead of Christ, right? And, and it's a really dangerous thing to do, by the way, too. One of the best things I ever heard on this was, and I'll have to paraphrase because I couldn't find where he said this, but uh, John Piper, another pastor here in the cities um, in Minneapolis, said this once. I think it was in context with the Hebrew sermon. Could, could be wrong. But he said about this idea of delay, if that's, if that's our mindset, especially for people, actually maybe explicitly for people, who understand all the components of the gospel, yet are saying, I totally get it, but I just need to do this before I, I just need to live this way or kind of get this out before I really engage with Christ, really pour into Jesus, really understand the gospel, really walk out of the tomb, especially for those types, his response to that was, it's super, super dangerous, and it's like playing with fire. Because whoever told us, or you, that it was really us who get to choose when we follow Jesus? Whoever said it was about us saying, okay, on my time, I get to choose. I'm going to wait two years, but after that, that's when I'm really going to pour in. The Bible actually says is, of course we get to choose, but it's really God wooing us and softening our hearts to the point where we, we can make that choice. We can follow. He's the one knocking on the door. He's the one softening the heart. He's the one raising us from the dead. He's the one regenerating. The Bible talks about that idea as well. And so what's dangerous about that then is you may want to follow Christ now. You may not want to in two years. Who's to say that God will be, po- will be knocking on that door fervently in a couple of years? Maybe you will, but maybe right now or maybe in a couple of years, you just flat out won't want to believe and won't want to follow. So we have to, as we, say, we talk about seizing the day all the time here in a spiritual sense. You have to look at what, the, what God is saying to us even right now through his word because he's always speaking to us in the Bible. It's his word. He wants us to know about him and salvation through his word. We have to take the day and just say, 
he's, he's, wooing, he's got me here. He's wooing me to him right now, and he wants me to hear his word. He wants me to follow him now, not to delay, because he can come back. Actually, Jesus talks a lot in parable form about this too later in Matthew. He talks about how there's lots of people that will delay or not live spiritually wise lives, kind of careless lives in the meantime, understanding a little bit about Jesus, knowing a little bit about him, even that he's going to return someday, but not truly actively believing the gospel and working that out in a church community. And then he says in parable form later, all of a sudden he comes back. Then it's too late. It's too late to believe. It's too late to follow. And only judgment ensues for those who, who live that way. We'll look at a lot of those parables a little bit later in Matthew, and they're in association actually with talk about the end and, and the cross and all of that, which are really, really encouraging but really challenging as well. But overall, here's the biblical encouragement. Don't delay. Don't delay. Some of you are checking out Christ for the first time. You barely understand the gospel, and that's great. We have a lot of people every Sunday who's, who are here and uh, from that uh, place, and we love that. But it's especially for those of you who do understand all the components. You understand the gospel. Don't be like this guy. It's very bad, very dangerous. It's playing with fire. Make today the day where you say, I'm going to not just believe fully in Christ and believe the gospel and walk out of that tomb, in a spiritual sense, but fully engage with the body of believers here on earth and in a way I never have in my life and get in community, get in accountability, uh, walk the straight and narrow. I mean, all that stuff the Bible calls us to, uh, put others and God before myself, all that stuff, not going to delay um, any anymore. That's the second thing. The third thing going on here, like we talked about before in the previous section, is simply that following Jesus will cost us something. Uh, in the last few sections, I guess we hit on that as well in unique ways, but uh, that, it will, that it will cost something. Billy Graham has said, I know many people have said this. I heard it from him first, so I'll give him credit. Billy Graham said, salvation is a free gift that will cost you everything you have. And I love that paradox because it's just so biblical. You know, because we can hear all this stuff in Matthew 8 and say, but you guys talk every Sunday about grace, how it's not about what you do. It's a free gift given by God simply to receive and not earn the blood of Christ, the death, on, death of Christ on the cross. That's the gift. And we do, and it's true. But at the same time, paradoxically, because it's real, because it actually is real, it actually does raise us from the dead, it actually does take our sin away, it calls us at the same time to walk out of that tomb and to, in a spirit-empowered sense that God makes possible, to live transformed different lives. So it'll cost us everything because it calls us away from ourselves to new life. That's painful. That's difficult. That's the cost. Part of the cost is it's a free gift that no one can earn given to us by God, but it costs us everything because it calls us away from our old life. It calls us out of that tomb, that prison that we've been wallowing in for our entire lives up to this point. So, so part of the gospel is you've been saved by the blood of Jesus, by grace alone, through your trust in that, not by works and good deeds of righteousness, but Another part of the gospel is, it's not about you anymore. Be free. It's not about you anymore. You are not your own. Another part of the gospel is simply that. You've been created, you've been purchased with a price, the Bible says. God owns us. And that's, a, that's again, one of the more freeing things we can ever, because we can't lose that, right? But part of the deal there is that we have to live consistently with that. So we can ask ourselves these questions. Are we... Are, Am I prepared to live as though I really have been crucified with Christ, my old self, and I'm dead? It's no longer I who live, but it's Christ who lives in me. 
am I really prepared to presently live as though I'm not my own? And is that, is that something I believe, but is it something that just, you know, takes shape in my life? Am I keeping in step with that? Galatians 5.25 talks about that. Am I keeping in step with the Spirit's guidance in all of those ways in, in my life? And if not, do it. Pray for help and just believe that the Spirit of God is at work in you to make you resemble Christ. I mean, this is not about you trying to perform for God. This is about believing he is inside you, causing you to live a life of good works. Ephesians 2.10 talks about that. He's created your good works before you're even born. That's how sovereign he is over our lives. It's amazingly freeing. It's incredible. It blows your mind. But it's true. So that no one can boast. And so that we can just walk freely in them every day. Look for opportunities to love and express kindness and generosity and humility to put others first and then simply to, um, to give God all the glory for it because he's the one who's empowering those types, those types of things. All right. Three things in uh, conclusion, in summary, from this passage. Be careful of vowing things to God. Your zeal for Jesus should be more in line with what he did for you than what you hope to do for him in the future. In fact, that can be one of the more obvious uh, tests for spiritual maturity that you might see in your own life or other people's lives. If people are more about what I'm going to do for Jesus and how I'm going to take over the world for Christ, it's not that they're not a Christian necessarily, but it's probably evidence that they're very young in the faith and that they're probably age-wise pretty young as well, or one of those two at least. But spiritual maturity really looks like zeal, even more zeal than that, but in a rightly placed way. Zeal for the fact that they've done nothing to save themselves. Zeal for what God has done for them. Excitement, passion, talk about it, love for it, preaching of it, sharing of it. Zeal for that is what embodies maturity at, at the highest level, not I can't wait to sell all my stuff and move to Zimbabwe and just live on nothing and what are you going to do tomorrow? <laughs> not that. No, whatever, but it's, that, that's the, the essence of our maturity is not to be so much like the scribe, but to, but to have zeal for primarily what he, what he has done for us. Because our promises to follow Christ do not save us, it's his promise to save us that saves us. Second is weigh the cost of following Christ. We will suffer, we'll be rejected even by family, we'll be looked upon as strange because in a worldly sense we are strange. Uh, we will be uncomfortable at times. We will constantly be called by the gospel to put God and others before ourselves because this is what God did for us on the cross. Constantly we'll be called to do that. That's painful. That's difficult. But by the strength of God, his grace is always stronger than our inabilities. He will empower these things, so be encouraged. But we'll, the gospel constantly, call, constantly displays to us in the cross we can't save ourselves. Constantly displays into the cross we're too sinful to save. Constantly displays us in the cross. That's how bad sin is. God had to die to, to undo it. Constantly we're seeing how much he loves. And in that sense, how much value we have to him, how much he wanted to come to our rescue, but at the same time, it is not about us. And so what spills out of our lives on the flip side of believing that is just concern for others. The outcasts, our families, the poor, just other people in the church maybe especially who need something, just friends. We're putting them before ourselves. And before them, God himself and Jesus and our lives are going to reflect that. So, so you see how in one sense that it's not about you thing is both bitter and sweet? 
It's the sweetest thing you'll ever hear because it's not about you saving yourself. Nothing you can do. It's about God. But it's also got that bitter tinge to it because, oh yeah, it's not about me here. I forgot how difficult every day you wake up and realize how much propensity we have to just serve and worship ourselves. When we go back to the cross, that's right. It's not about me. Sometimes I just got to hear myself say that, literally. Hear my voice. And I encourage you guys to do that if you want. <laughs> but every day, to wake up and just hear my voice say that. It's not about you. It's about Jesus today. So how can that be demonstrated in my life, in my family, in my church, and in all that? So, so bitter and sweet uh, t- uh, tinge to, to the gospel. Mostly sweet, but with that bitter call, it costs us the worship of self, which we're being yanked from, but it can be a painful process uh, depending on the day and season. All right, and third and final, don't be the spiritually dead who bury their own dead. In other words, make today the day that you fully trust in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins for the first or millionth time. Turn from your old way of living, die to yourself, and get heavily invested uh, in in the church. And if, if you are one of those types that you've been just kind of kicking the tires in a sense for a while at church and waiting, delaying a bit. Uh, let me encourage you, just to, and that's still a bit abstract for you, talk to a leader. We, we love talking to people and do frequently about how that can take shape, what that means, what it means to get more invested in the church, what it means to not delay, but to actively, proactively in community believe the gospel and be all about that. So uh, please talk to me or one of uh, the elders or deacons or leaders that you know. Uh, we'd love to help you uh, think practically about that in, in your life. But, but that is still the calling here, the difficult teaching and calling that, that is upon all disciples of, of Jesus Christ. So, so think about that. All right, let me pray. God, thanks, God, for your grace at work in all the scriptures. Thank you for Matthew 8 and the gospel that's there. It's a bit veiled, but all we got to do is peel back the layers a bit and we see how much you are really the ultimate one that has been homeless for us on the cross. And you're really the ultimate one who has who has not delayed, uh, but has vowed and old and promised to come to our rescue and save us from our sins, uh, God. So we just pray, Lord, for help. I, I, as I was praying all week, I pray it now for myself and the church here that we would be super encouraged by, by how much you have taken an oath by yourself to save us, at the same time convicted and challenged uh, to live a life that is um, actually reflective of the fact that we believe we've been called from the tombs actually reflective of the fact that we really believe we're saved from sin. We actually are called into a church. There's no, no individual Christianity out there. We're called into the family of the church uh, to be a part of it and to help grow the gospel among us and out to our city and beyond. So pray for that as well and that you just, in a healthy way, convict us of that sin, draw us back to you for forgiveness. And again, overall, praise God for sending your son into the world to die for all of our sins, one of which is, our inability to follow you well. So it's all about you. Praise God. Help us to respond now and just to be thankful for what you've done and pray in Christ's name. Amen.